Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 75 of the Brown County Hour. This is Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the crew. This month, we're celebrating our 75th show with a look back at some of our favorite pieces. It was really hard to select the best of the best, and we couldn't make it fit into a one-hour show, so we're presenting this as the radio version. The extra content that was too good to cut will be on our website, browncountyhour.com. Let's kick off this celebration with Reverend Josh Payton's tune, Brown County Bound. One day I'll be back around, until then I'm Brown County Bound. One day I'll be back in town, until then I'm Brown County Bound. And it's a long, cold winter And it's a long, hot summer But it's a short fall back home One day I'll be back around Until then, I'm Brown County bound I'll be seeing you all around Until then, I'm Brown County bound it's a long, cold winter, and it's a long, hot summer, but it's a short fall back home. And if you want to be around me, I don't have to go there alone. I'll be down in Brown County with these hills and my In keeping with the season, we have Jim Eagleman and Jeff Keller talking about frogs from episode 61. Hello once again, this is Jim Eagleman reporting for WFHB, the Brown County Hour, and this is our Nature News segment for this time with our special guest, Jeff Keller. In addition to his CD of Brown County Bird Calls, Jeff has also developed a keen interest in frogs here locally and worldwide. Thanks for coming on to the show today, Jeff. Thank you, Jim. Tell us about your Brown County property. I understand you live on a ranch. I refer to it as a frog ranch. I bought the property about 10 years ago. It's a five and a half acre parcel of land. It came with a one and a half acre pond uh, with bass and bluegill, and there were three species of frogs that bred on the property when I bought it. However, 
I put in and dug shallow, fish-free ephemeral ponds, and the amphibians love them. I now have eight species of frogs and toads that breed on the property out of a possible 11 species that breed in Brown County. Well, with all the rain lately, let's talk a little bit about what folks are listening to, and they surely have uh, noticed more frog calls, probably from roadside ditches as you're driving to work. And one call that is unmistakable is the chorus frog. What can you tell us about this unique That's one frog. of the first frogs that you will hear calling in early spring or late winter, and it is a species that frequents the floodplains, the lowlands. They call during the day. Both the fact that, they call, that they're calling in huge numbers in the daytime and in a floodplain pretty much boils it down to chorus frogs. Uh, the call, if you can hear the individual calls, it will be reminiscent of uh, raking your thumbnail across a comb. However, to appreciate that, you'd have to hear just maybe a half a dozen of these frogs going at once, and typically you hear hundreds mm-hmm. of them, which is white noise, basically. Hence the term chorus. They're in a big, big group. They are they? indeed. Very and appropriate. That, another call that, that we hear down by our mailbox are the spring peepers. It's a big peep from a little frog. Absolutely. These little guys can be ear-shattering at close proximity. They generally are an upland species, and they prefer much more wooded sites than the chorus frogs that are more out in the open country in the fields and the, and the ditches. But they, too, call all night long. I should say they prefer to call in the night and not in the day. So just the very fact that they're calling at different times helps one differentiate the spring peepers from the chorus frogs. Besides, they do sound considerably different once you get a feel for that. And then we were talking earlier about this unique frog, the wood frog, and what can you say about it? Wood frogs are one of my favorite species in this county. They are truly a spectacle during breeding season, a sight to behold. They are uncommon. You have to know where to go to find them, but two of the best places to see them are in Brown County State Park. Hesitation Point Pond is probably ground zero for wood frog breeding activity in the entire county. You need to know when to go visit this particular site because the number of days where they breed is very brief. It may be over and done with in 36 to 48 hours. It is traditionally the last week or two of February when we get three consecutive days of 55 to 60 degree temperatures. That really brings out the wood frogs and they congregate in mass to this pond. But what makes it so fascinating is the fact that the males outnumber the females by a whopping 10 to one or even 15 or 20 to one. Mm. The females are much larger and they need to be. There is a color difference. The females are bronzy colored and the males are dark. So you can actually look out there and say, I see five females, but there are just dozens of Mm -hmm. males. And finally, we're experiencing this steady warm trend, and the trilling of the American toad is a call we're probably all familiar with, and I'm sure many people notice. And it's not a true frog, of course, but it is needing to return to the water, like all the frogs that you've mentioned. You are correct. The toads only return to water to breed. There, are, We have two species, American toads and Fowler's toads, but we only have about three of the um, species of frogs that stay near permanent water. Most of our frogs, like the toads, after the breeding is over, disseminate out into the hinterland. Wood frogs are one of them. Spring peepers leave the breeding sites. That is a, is a difference. Mostly it's the difference is the, the dryness of the skin. The toads right. are so dry right. and uh, their back legs aren't well developed yeah. and they just merely hop instead yeah. of leap. Good but they're very see. similar. Nice to have our local guest, Jeff Keller, with us today. Learn all about the different kinds of frogs here in Brown County. 
This is Jim Eagleman reporting again for Nature News, WFHB, the Brown County Hour. Thanks for listening. Also from episode 61, we'll share a remembrance of Chris Curtin with his poem, Electile Dysfunction. I'm sad to report that our friend and longtime contributor Chris Curtin passed away a few weeks ago. This is heartbreaking news for all of us here at the Brown County Hour, and I'm sure for many of our listeners who enjoyed his poems and short stories. Our hearts go out to Chris's many friends and especially his family in this sad time. Chris looked at the world with a keen eye for observation and a wry sense of humor that left many of us laughing out loud. He had a way of taking the simplest topic and turning it into something profound. His smooth delivery mixed in with his clever voice inflections added a depth to his work that many of us only wish we could accomplish. We are fortunate to have several of Chris's poems in our archives, and it's our privilege to share one with you now. Thank you, Chris, for all your work. We'll never forget you. Here is a timely poem Chris recorded during the elections called Electile Dysfunction. This is Chris Curtin with a presidential campaign looming formidably on the horizon like a mushroom cloud. Many of us are understandably anxious and fearful that we may fall victim to the ultimate equipment failure dreaded by men everywhere. Yes, I'm talking about ED, electile dysfunction, the complete inability to perform satisfactorily your duties as a citizen and consummate your obligations as a voter. Warning, if you're exposed to a politician for more than four hours, you should consult a physician immediately, preferably a specialist in plain English and a doctor of common sense. While I can't explain the physics of it in layman's terms, It has something to do with the gusts of hot air emanating from the political windbags filling all the available oxygen with wild accusations, overblown rhetoric, and empty promises, coupled with the resulting drop in barometric pressure, which in turn causes whatever little cloud of integrity happens to be floating around in the air to be sucked out of the atmosphere and into another solar system gone forever. This election campaign we will enjoy the privilege of selecting from a dozen or so candidates from the two parties. Lobbyists are lined up with suitcases full of cash, private jets, and wild women with very low standards who are willing to spend their time listening to these gas bags prattle on, endlessly pontificating on every issue their speechwriters tell them they firmly believe in with every fiber of their being at this moment in time until the speechwriters tell them they believe in something else with every fiber of their being. Eventually, the politician suffers from fiber overload. As a result, he cannot remember anything that he believes in. I myself am considering running for political office. All my life, I have heard that politicians are shiftless and lazy and never do any real work. I believe that this would suit me to a T, but I do have some questions. I am lazy, I won't argue with that, but I'm not sure about shiftlessness. What is shift? Is shift everywhere you look, or is it a rare quality possessed only by a few very special persons? Is there good shift and bad shift? Is one person's shift better than another's? What exactly is the meaning of shiftless? 
is to be lacking or totally out of shift? If so, then I'm afraid I wouldn't measure up. I'm most certainly not shiftless. Friends and family alike often tell me that I'm completely full of shift. So I believe that it is best if I put my political career on hold until I am sure that I'm made of the right stuff. The Hammer and the Hatchet perform their tune, Ferris Hill. Say, old Bill, heard you bought up Ferris Hill. Oh, I've seen those big machines coming around. Say, old Bill, you're still kicking back that swill. Your son runs off way back up in the harbor. I think you've lost your mind. 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 I remember a time Back before you came around When that hill for me Became hallowed ground I hiked up to the top Day a good friend checked out Fell apart up there, but I don't think you could give a damn about that. I swear I lost my mind. 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 Now you're clearing off all the big timber. Our friend Jeff Tryon shares a story from episode 41 about stolen watermelons. Driving through Bean Blossom one summer day, I saw old Bud Smith sitting out there with his wagon full of watermelons and cantaloupes, so I stopped by and bought one. These melons are grown right down the hill in the Bean Blossom Creek bottom. Were probably picked today or yesterday. A lady at the roadside tent assured me she had just sampled one and they were sweet as sugar. And it was. I asked Bud, do the kids ever steal watermelons out of your patch? I honestly just wondered if kids today still had the energy and initiative. Yeah, they steal them sometimes, he said. More sad than angry. Sounded kind of disappointed. A few months ago, he said, a fellow came up to me at Brownie's restaurant and he said, Are you Bud Smith? I said, Yeah. He says, Back in 1989, a friend and I came and stole some cantaloupes out of your field and we sat on the schoolhouse steps and ate them. He said, I never did feel right about that and it still bothers me every time I drive past there. And he put a $5 bill down there on the table. I said, It's okay. You don't need to pay me. But he said he'd feel better if he did. Bud said, 
About that time, the waitress came, and she reckoned as how if nobody else wanted that five, it would make a nice tip. Anyway, it reminded me of a story Dad used to tell about him and some boys stealing watermelons around this time of year. They were poor as Abe Martin and twice as Henri. Dad was a twin, so double dose of hijinks was involved. He and his brother tended to have big ideas and get into things. They weren't thieves or criminal in any sense of the word. They were raised by a very strict moral example, except for this particular vice, actually more of a sport, of sneaking into a local farmer's watermelon patch in late summer and snagging a few ripe beauties for a watermelon feast at the old barn later. Ah, youth. They would slip down the dark lane, trying not to alert the farm dogs, slip through the barbed wire fence into Farmer McGregor's capacious field of juicy sweet melons. About the time they had selected a nice ripe specimen, snipping it from its umbilical vine with their ever-present old-timer pocket knives, the old hound dogs would start barking and raising the alarm up at the farmhouse. Often, as the little bandits scurried away, each clutching their purloined prize, the old farmer would come out on the porch and fire off the 12-gauge a couple of times, but luckily for me, he never managed to kill Dad. Now, they were young kids, maybe eight or nine years old. They already worked in the fields for their father, who would make a contract to raise tomatoes for the canning factory. That was an all-hands-on-deck, family-survival type thing. But by the time they were teenagers, they were seeking additional work, paying work, outside the family to buy their own shoes and school clothes. The family was large and desperately poor. And, of course, one of the places they worked was for old Farmer McGregor, who had a big spread with a little bit of everything and hired help for planting, haying, and harvesting from among the local youth. One day, while they were working with him in the spring, planting gardens for produce, the farmer told them to go down in the rich bottom field next to the road and plant watermelons. And he indicated that they should plant it all in watermelons, over an acre of them. Why do you grow so many watermelons, asked my dad. Do you sell that many watermelons in a season? Oh no, said the old farmer, but I plant a lot of extras so that the local boys can come down in the middle of the night and steal a few of them. Really? Dad asked with what must have been a guilty tone. Oh yeah, said the farmer. Sometimes I run out and fire the shotgun off a couple of times just to add to the sense of danger. But I'm not really aiming at them, he said with a conspiratorial smile. So, the farmer apparently staged this elaborate ritual of providing free watermelons to those bold enough to take them, but also a lesson learned early about the probable reactions of the victims of such petty crimes. The Russian poet Yevtushenko wrote, Stolen apples always taste better. And he wasn't just being a good commie, either. No, Yevtushenko was speaking to a basic, universal human desire to get something for nothing for an unexpected and perhaps forbidden pleasure, for the idea that not just the political state, but God himself has decreed and ordained that everything belongs to everybody. I couldn't help wondering if Bud's melons would taste even sweeter if I slipped back over there under cover of darkness and carried one away. And then I wondered if old Bud still has a shotgun. Well, you sure have to consider all the angles when you're living in my Brown County. Next, Jason Blankenship performs his tune, Mahalosville Road.
Baby, I think we've been running too much lately. Let's pour us a drink and rest these weary bones. Maybe we've been mistaken all this doing for living. But all can be forgiven if we find a way back home. And there's a spot under the shady tree. I could lay in your arms for a while Bring it on back to me Trade in some time For all those miles that we've known Along the Haleysville Road People always said we'd never come to nothing Taking what we give and singing dusty old folk songs Now maybe they were right, hell wouldn't that be something But try as they might, they could never bring us down There's a spot under the shady tree I could lay your arms for a while Bring it on back to me Trade in some time For all those miles that we've known Out on my Haleysville Road seem kind of strange to me these passing days Nothing ever seems to change for me but Nothing ever stays the same Chuck Wills presents his this old guitar story from episode 60. This is my 1963 Harmony Hollywood, and it looks like a lot of old guitars might. It's an acoustic instrument, but it has a little gold-colored pickup on it so that you can plug it into an amplifier. In many ways, it's just another faded old guitar with a worn and cracked sunburst finish. The white edge binding that was painted on at the factory is now worn down to bare wood from years of use. To me, it looks like a guitar that my blues heroes might have played back in the day, maybe with a bottleneck slide. This assembly of wood and strings would not be special, if not for the fact that it is special. It's special to me. You see, my dad bought this guitar back when it was almost new in 1963, and had it with him when he moved to San Diego, California to go to photography school. Can you imagine the scene of being in Southern California in the early 60s? The surf and the sand, the Beach Boys, Dick Dale, they were all getting their start. Leo Fender was changing the face of music with his amplifiers and his instruments, and this guitar was there. 
When Dad bought it, I think his idea was just to hang out with friends and play some music, maybe catch the ear of some pretty California girls. I know he and his friends had fun with it, though, because a lot of the finish was worn off when I first saw it. The little harmony followed Dad back from California to his childhood home in the Ozarks of Missouri, and later on to Indianapolis. And not long after that, I appeared on the scene, and the guitar lived in the hall closet for most of my youth. As a child, I would sometimes pull it out of the case and marvel at the sounds that I could make with it. But it always went back into the space beneath the stairs. That is, until I decided to drag it with me on an adventure after college. Commandeered and saved from the closet and strapped to the back of my Jeep, this guitar and I spent the summer traveling the country from one national park to the next. The harmony that started in California made a swing back through the state with me, going from Yosemite to San Francisco and all the way up Highway 1 to Seattle. Those were good times and it wouldn't have been the same without that guitar. Some 20 years later, I found myself in Nashville working as a musician, among other things. Along with a collection of guitars, I still have the harmony. It has a little more finish worn off, but plays as sweetly as ever. In fact, we used it in the recording studio on an album that I played on recently. An old school guitar with an old school sound that has developed over the years and the miles and the mojo from the hands that have played it. When I look at this guitar on my wall, it's more than just an instrument. I see connections. A connection with the blues legends that played slide guitar and juke joints down in the Delta. A connection to 60s Southern California, to my dad's stories and history. Even a connection to my own memories and to the possibility of what might be next. There's more life in this instrument, certainly on into the next generation that gets to care for it. When Dad first strummed a chord on this Harmony Hollywood in 1963, neither he nor the guitar could imagine what would be coming in the next 55 years. But I am grateful for its stories, that I have gotten to be its caretaker. I'm grateful that this is my old guitar. Hello, faithful radio listeners. This is Mike Buby on WFHB with the Brown County Hour. I have a tale to tell. It happened long ago. Some details may have been forgotten, but I'll tell you what I know. I don't know how it came into the family, but when I was a young boy, I remember that my grandpa had a gun standing in the corner behind his bedroom door. It looked rather small and simple, but the most interesting thing about it was its octagon barrel. I found out later that it was called a single shot rolling block, 22 caliber rifle. The manufacturer of this particular gun had its beginnings in the early 1900s. I never knew of Grandpa ever hunting with it, but I knew it was always standing there in the corner behind the bedroom door. For curiosity or whatever reason, I always made it a point to check on it whenever we visited our grandparents. Finally, one day, I asked my mom about it. I figured it would be safer to ask her first rather than to have Grandpa think that I was a nosy little kid. So my mom told me a rather funny story about her dad and the gun, a story that was not so funny at the time. She said my Grandpa always worked the night shift, so when he would get home early in the morning, he wanted his rest and went right to bed. As it turned out, there were times Grandpa wasn't able to sleep very well. 
the routine noises of the day's activities going on would keep him awake, especially one particular sound that was quite annoying to him. I was told that after a long spell of much complaining about it to Grandma, Grandpa decided he had had enough. It was after getting home early one morning from a rough night's work, Grandpa was pretty darn tired and laid right down only to be woken once again by the harmonious and relentless sound that aggravated him to no end. It must have been on the hourly chiming of the cuckoo clock because Grandpa evidently had had enough time to grab his trusty rolling block twenty-two rifle sight in and lay the cuckoo bird to rest. Yes, the annoying sound of the cuckoo bird that hung on the bedroom wall had been silenced so Grandpa could finally get his rest. Mom didn't say, but I would suspect that Grandma didn't go to investigate the situation until she heard Grandpa snoring soundly. And that also explained why the cuckoo clock never worked for as long as I can remember. Throughout the years, the gun itself had since been passed on somewhere else. Even though the little gun with an octagon barrel is gone, my memories of it standing in the corner behind the bedroom door and what my mom had told me still makes for the entertaining story of the day the cuckoo died. Patrick Nylander plays his Native American flute from episode 58. We pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Now comes the conversation with Larry Pujol and John Mills that aired on episode 30. Let's talk about being potters in Brown County. John should probably start since he was here first. Started in 68, thought I'd do it for a year before I got serious, and I never got serious. Did it with a gas kill. I did it for 26 years that way. And then my wife and I went out west, first to Colorado, then to Arizona, and had to switch to electric because we were on a hundred-year-old wooden floor. Stayed with electric when we came back here at the end of 2000. That's when we changed the pottery name to Brown County Pottery instead of John Mills Pottery. Before that, I hadn't felt like I'd earned the use of the title Brown County Pottery, which is a wonderful historic pottery that started in the 30s by 
the end of 2000, I felt like I'd earned the name, and so I took it. Who were the potters involved in Brown County Pottery back in the day? Walter Griffith and his wife, right across the alley from my pottery now. It was their son who was the main potter at first. They made earthenware pottery. You can see a little bit of it in the Nashville House restaurant. Well, Larry, what about you? I had been going to uh, graduate school out in Washington State. My wife and I decided to leave. We traveled around for a while, and I came through Nashville, I think it was December in 1976. And I had been traveling, and I was pretty broke. So I was trying to figure out how to make some money so I could keep moving on. So I rented a little shop, and my rent was $85. Wow. No so heat, no running water. <laughs> no running water? No. No, that's... I used, to get, I used to get my water over at the leather shop next door. Okay. And then eventually we, well, we hooked up some water. <laughs> in a Brown County sort of way. In a Brown County First sort we built of way. a porch, and then we added onto the porch, and then or enclosed the porch, and then we added some water to it. But uh, so I was there, and pretty primitive, and built a kill out in the back. Got to know John. Uh, coincidentally, the potter that I was studying with in Washington, a guy by the name of Carlton Ball, he was good friends with Carl Martz, who was a pretty famous potter in this area, and also te he was teaching at IU at the time. So when I came back, I got to know the Martzes. So I stayed in Nashville and uh, made pots, uh, high temperature stoneware and porcelain. In the beginning, I had your typical Nashville business situation. I'd make a lot of money in the fall and say, hey, honey, let's go to Florida for a couple months. <laughs> go to Florida, come back broke, and start over again. So, I still don't have water in the shop. We carry it in a watering can, but that works. And we do have heat, however. Carl Martz was my major professor over at Indiana University in graduate school. For me, it was, it was great because I didn't have any money. I started my career here. And gradually, once I had kids and I got a little more serious about it, I started thinking that I needed to make money more than 90 days a year. And then uh, I just decided that I wanted to uh, uh, wholesale. I bought a house and large auto garage on it and uh, turned that auto garage into a studio and made pots there for almost another 20 years. And now you're in public service. Right. Well, when my kids went to college, I thought, God, I need to do something else. What am I good at? Let me see. I'm pretty good at not making any money. Maybe I ought to go into the not-for-profit world. And that's exactly what I did. How Jeff. is the clay here? Is, it, is there decent clay that could be used? It'll fire to about 2,000 degrees. You'd make an earthenware. I believe that the first Brown County pottery did use at least some of it, and the Brown County Hills pottery used some. He stopped in the shop as they were folding up, and he said, well, we say we use Brown County clay, but, you know, we add enough of it so we can say that. Uh, mostly they used a commercial clay called red art. And I used that as the darker clay in my mix along with the fire clay. I used local clay probably the first five years I was here. I, I got pre-mixed clay, but I'd go over to Clay City. But uh, they dug their clay there, and they, it was pretty good clay. I just get fire clay from Missouri, which is an extremely high melting point clay. It's used to make fire brick. I add the red clay from Ohio to it to make the color more interesting. That's where the clay is left bare. Of course, there are glazes over the larger part of it, a glaze being glass melted on the surface. Both mixed our glazes from just raw chemicals. Carl taught his students how to calculate the chemistry on a molecular level, and most of the students didn't want to bother, but I loved it. Carl was gratified to have a student take to it. And it gives you a better predictive ability as to the melting, the surface texture, as well as color. 
And then there's always the cost. It's a lot cheaper to make your own glazes than to buy them commercial. Oh, my God. And I have to say that I always admired John because I don't think anybody was more frugal in making his clay and mixing his own glazes. You know, his uh, cost-to-profit ratio had to be pretty good. My glazes average $4 a gallon. Do you have any idea what they pay for a half pint of glaze at American Art Clay Company? Yeah, I do, yes. What? Uh, That's like $25, (laughs) $30. That's not a gallon that he's talking about. No, no. Yeah, you can't dip a large piece of pot in a little pint of clays, can you? If you're going to do it and make money, you, uh, if you can make your clay and you can make your glaze, you're, you're better off. Yeah, when something goes wrong, I can get right on it and change it. Well, and you've got a finger in the pie all the way along, so you know where the problem is. Sometimes you don't, and that's part of the fun. <laughs> when things blow up in your face, now you've got a problem to solve. Well, you've got to love a craft that can occasionally involve an explosion. Pyromaniacs, that's what we are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. pottery maniacs. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. Here's one from way back in episode 15. Rick Fettig with the Hillbilly Love Potion. Hello, my name is Rick Fettig. Some of you, I hope, are getting to know my voice from the Brown County Hour. Others of you know me from my work. I do mostly maintenance, light construction, and some remodeling around Bloomington and Brown County. On many of those hot, humid Indiana summer days, my clothes are often sopping wet with perspiration. You could probably wring them out and fill up a six or eight ounce glass. In winter, when the temperature dips down, it's time to put on those long johns. Once they're on, they don't come off often until the temperature rises or I get a chance to throw them in the laundry once a week. To get to the point, I've developed my own special fragrance. I found some backers and a couple of chemists, and we now have bottled that fragrance. And in honor of Brown County, we're calling it BC Number 6. It's now available to you if you call in now. Call BR549 right now. Operators are on duty. Women, if your man never does any physical labor, and at the end of the day he comes home still smelling like a Christmas tree on a rearview mirror, hit him with a mist of this BC Number 6, or put a dose on his sleepwear. It's guaranteed to kick up the pheromones a notch. Men, if you know you haven't broke a sweat in months and you'd like to add a little spice in your evenings at home with the one you love, a little dose of BC number 6 is guaranteed to boost her serotonin and dopamine. And she'll associate that pleasure and euphoria with you. It's a win-win. Operators are on duty. Call in now and save 25%. Call BR549. And due to our current military involvements where couples and families have had to be separated for long periods of time, we have also developed BC number 9. If you call in now, we'll throw a sample bottle of BC number 9 with your order of BC number 6. BC number 9 is thicker and creamier than BC number 6. Just a little dab on the end of your finger and apply as desired as you recall that special seaman you've been missing or that airman, marine corps, or army personnel who have been deployed for some time. Operators on duty, call in right now, BR549, and order your bottle of BC number 6 and your free sample of BC number 9 and save 25%. Call now, operators are on duty. BR549. And Carrie Ray brings us a song. What did you do that for? When I met you in the springtime, my new summer and fall. By the time the snow was flying, 
I've given you my all For many seasons we were happy As the crow's about to call Then you started staying out late And never coming home at all So I've been climbing the wall I've been walking the floor I've been banging on the window I've been hanging on the door You said you had to leave because You didn't love me anymore Broke my tender little heart What did you do that for? You're late, late, late You're late, late, late late. I never felt this way before, dear I'll never feel it again But it's hard to tell you losing When it seems you're bound to win You acted so much like you loved me I would have given you the part But the curtain all but fell deep Before the show could even start So I've been climbing the wall I've been walking the floor I've been banging on the window I've been hanging on the door You said you had to leave because You didn't love me anymore Broke my tender little heart What did you do that for? You're late, late, late You're late, late, late Going all the way back to episode 7, we recorded the very first interview with the Indiana Boys. Okay, this is Rick Fettig, and I'm here with the Brown County Hour, and we're hosting the Indiana Boys this evening, aren't we? Isn't that what you guys call yourself? We do, most of the time. We got uh, Dan Bilger on the bass, straight from the White Lightning Boys and other uh, parts unknown. And uh, Barry Elkins, Mr. Barry Todd, as we, uh, as we affectionately call him, he's playing the mandolin for us tonight, and playing it well. And I got Dickie Gist over here to my left, running the soundboard and playing the guitar all at the same time. He's a wonder. And then uh, myself, I'm Keenan Rainwater, and I'm playing the guitar and singing, and once in a while I play the harmonica a little bit. Okay, so are you from Brown County? Oh, I sure am, yeah. All okay. 29 years. Yeah. How do you think living in Brown County has inspired your writing and your musical abilities? I think it's pretty broad. You know, it's not only inspired me to do music, it's surrounded me with people that do, you know. In Brown County, there's so much talent, and there's so many people that play music, it's it's fairly easy to get hooked up in the in the culture of it and, and in that circle of folks. And, uh, and there's such a good bunch of people, it's hard to get out of it once you're into it, you know, even if you should want to, and I don't. But uh, like we were talking earlier, there's a lot of intermixing among the groups. Right. You, know, you just walk in and play, and then uh, you go to somebody's house and play some more, and, or there's a, a campfire or something yeah. like that. And The generations before me to pass it down to us uh, around a campfire and, and the, the fella's garage, you know, we got a, a friend of ours that just had his 80th, 80th birthday, and he hosts us out there. And, uh, you know, pass it down what he knows to right. us. Is that's that the awesome. Thursday night session? It's the Thursday night jam. <laughs> Uncle Odie's. Yeah. Uncle Odie's, yeah. Yeah, that great time. We'll share Dave Seastrom's interview with Bird Snyder from episode 16. Hello, this is Dave Seastrom, and it's my privilege to interview Bird Snyder, well-renowned mushroom hunter, uh, banjo picker in the White Lightning Boys, and well-known carpenter in Brown County. Hey, Bird, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm, I'm doing good. So glad you could show up for this. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, uh, I know that there's a lot of mystery involved in hunting mushrooms. 
And, you know, for those of us that go out for hours and hours and get very little compared to someone like you, who is a legend, is there any truth to the rumor that you harvested and sold many, many pounds of mushrooms last year? I sold 84 pounds. Oh, my God. <laughs> and gave away maybe 30 or 40. Huh. Uh, can I get on that list? Or <laughs> You can. <laughs> 84 pounds? Yeah. Lord. Uh, got any, like, insider tips for those of us that like to, you know, do a little better as we get out there? Well, you know, early in the year, you want to start on the north, northeast-facing hillsides, preferably hunting ash trees. And you want to start looking at the base of saplings, anywhere that the leaves create like a small greenhouse, maybe a log laying on the ground. The leaves have kind of rolled up against it, and there's that little air cavity where the sun heats that ground first. And at anything that's basically 90 degrees, you know, that catches the sun, that'll be the first place you'll find them. And those are the warmest areas where the leaf covers the thinnest. Are you one of those people that believes in hunting mushrooms by walking up the hill or? Yeah, especially the black mushrooms early in the year for uh -huh. sure. An ash tree, a lot of times its root will start surfacing if it puts up black mushrooms. I. I don't know for sure, but I, I believe in my experience that if a tree doesn't have shallow roots, it, it won't put up mushrooms. Of all of them, yellows are your favorite? or? Yeah, really, I don't eat them too much. <laughs> uh, so how many would you find if you did like to eat them? I don't know. Mercy. Uh, when you get ready to go out, do you have anything that you do? I mean, do you have some like mental preparation to get those mushroom eyes on or... No, you know, I've had the same reoccurring dream since I've been a kid. The mushroom dream? Uh, it's the same dream every year. I haven't had it yet this year. Once I have that dream, it's pretty much all I can think about. So you don't go out and sniff the air or kick around and see if the mayapples are up or anything. You wait for that dream. Well, no, I go out early. I've been out. I found some three weeks ago before that snow, but yeah. they were really small. I've found them and left them uh, for seven weeks before they've matured. You know, a lot of people say, well, they grow really it. fast. And Well, there's legends that, like, in a day, they'll pop out of the ground. and. But they're there. Like, on a good year, I've removed leaves before. I mean, I'm talking in an area three times the size of this room, every leaf. But we wasn't getting the rain when we needed it. Instead of raining every three to four days, we were lucky if we could get one a week. As far as I know, you know, they grow in the top two inches of the soil. Well, that's the first thing to dry out with the sun. I think actually on dry years, they're there. You just got to find find those moist areas that didn't dry out so fast. I know where a lot of places are that grow mushrooms, but it's just from covering as much ground as I can possibly cover. Usually I'll take off work for three weeks, and from the time it gets daylight till it gets dark, I'm mushroom hunting. There was a time where I, I had rode my mountain bike in and left my mountain bike. Thought, well, you know, I've been up to the head of this holler before, and it can be really good. There's some big elm in there, but I'm not going. And then I thought, well, hell, I've got my flashlight. I'm going to go ahead and go. So I take off, and I go up there. There's this huge white elm tree, and the bark's peeling on it. And I thought, man, if, there's, if that's all mushroom, there's no way. You could see, like... You could see the haze of, in the head of that hollow, there was 19 and a half pounds oh my God. under one white elm tree. Wow. 
So this is like a pinnacle and, moment for you in mushroom hunting. Right. Well, Ryan Reichert, a guy that hunts with me a lot, we hit a tree like that last year that had 17 pounds under it. Wow. Wow. They were everywhere. Mercy. We picked for three hours on one tree. I mean, they were everywhere. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's about covering ground. You know, those trees are few and far between. Those two trees are the best two trees I've ever found in my life. You've certainly told some inspiring tales of mushroom hunting, and I really uh, appreciate your coming in with this. Can you think of something that, something inspiring or something that you'd say to somebody that's thought about mushroom hunting and has never really motivated themselves to get out there and do it? Or uh, Give me a call and I'll sell you something. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, Bird, thank you very much for coming in, man. Hey, thank really you. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. From episode 35... Gunther Flume's Voodoo. Voodoo doo-doo, voodoo doo-doo, voodoo doo-doo, by Gunther Flume. Think of how much guts it takes since I admit I make mistakes and then move on to making more to keep them baffled by my score. It though it may be true I'm stupid, I'm really wrong when playing Cupid. For my mistakes make me the best at finding friends their feathered nest. Since they just take one look at me and see how wrong a man can be. So, Valentine's, I'm always there to help my friends in their despair. Now, take the case of my friend Bill, who had a gal of iron will, who also had a heart of lead, a box of rocks inside her head, a face and body like a whale, with nose hairs like a possum's tail. Why, she's so ugly, it's been said in graveyards. She can spook the dead. I seen a skunk that caught her eye, then caught its breath to pass her by. Plus mean and rotten to my friend who swore he'd love her to the end. But all her plans had just one error as she held our friend Bill in terror. For we could tell by all the strife that she endangered poor Bill's life. So since I knew she was to blame, I figured I could play her game. So I went through the garbage pails just to find her hair and nails. Then in an outhouse in a stall, I slipped inside her voodoo doll. That night she knew that something's wrong as she felt doo-dooed all day long as she smelled like a toxic spill that only stopped away from Bill. So I knew soon that she'd decide her life was awkward by Bill's side and it was all because of me whose voodoo doo-doo set Bill free. But here's the last wag to this tale for soon a wedding did prevail as my friend Bill in total glee has found a gal of high degree whose lowered standards of her love has fit Bill like a worn-out glove. So how do I help this friend of mine with his brand new Valentine? My gift to them their wedding day, I promised them I'd stay away. Whenever I see them off in the distance, I can always tell that means a lot to both of them. Yours truly, Gunther Flum. We'll close the show with a choice piece from episode 28, S.G. Stratagos's rendition of the closing arguments in the moonshine trial of Alex Mullis. Attorney Bill Jones' summation to the jury in the moonshine trial of Alex Mullis. Gentlemen of the jury, ladies and gentlemen of the court, Your Honor, I'd like to thank you for your patience during this trial, and I'd like to compliment you on the orderliness with which you have conducted yourselves. Here in Brown County, things are done differently. Myself, I'm nothing but a country lawyer. But I did grow up believing that Brown County was part of a democratic republic which guarantees a man certain unalienable rights, and that among these rights are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
Let's have a look at that last right I mentioned, the pursuit of happiness. Constitution says no man shall be denied. Now, I don't know how they pursue happiness up there in Indianapolis. Maybe they go a-dancing. Maybe a picture show. Maybe a ball game now and then. In Brown County, they're different people pursue happiness in different ways. Old man Ains here, he's got a tobacco farm. We all know that ain't an easy life. And Mr. Ains, he works that land hard. He works it hard when the crop come in and it's cut and hung and dried and cured. Well, old Mr. Ains, he brings in that crop to market and gets the best price he can for it. Most of the crop he does that with. As for the rest of the crop, he lays a little aside to do with as he pleases. Maybe he dips snuff, he chews, maybe smokes a pipeful in his parlor and tells stories to his grandkids. But he does it because he likes to. It makes him happy. And there ain't a person alive on God's green earth gonna tell him he ain't allowed. Now this other man here, the defendant in this trial, Alex Mullis, among other things, he grows corn. Now, if he wants to sell some at market and lay some aside to do with whatever he pleases in pursuit of his happiness, is someone going to tell Alex Mullis can't do that? He ain't allowed? Is Mr. Robinson of the state of Indiana down here to tell Alex Mullis, a good Democrat to the bone, a citizen of this Democratic Republic of these United States, that Alex Mullis cannot in no simple manner pursue his happiness? And we all know how happy a little kick a white mule makes you feel. More than a few of you know exactly what I mean. Beside which, the state has not shown one shred of evidence which proves that the moonshine still in question belongs to Alex Mullis, or in fact, that the apparatus is even a moonshine still at all. For all the state has shown, Alex or someone else might have been using that old wash tub to wash their dirty overalls. The state has not shown us the evidence. The state has relied on colorful talk. Don't get me wrong, I like colorful talk. I'm accustomed to it. I tip my hat to Mr. Robinson's poetry, but I throw my hat down at the insinuation that Alex Mullis has something to hide. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the pot calling the kettle black. I suggest it is Mr. Robinson and the state of Indiana who are masquerading pretended to prosecute Alex for a crime of owning and operating a moonshine still, when in fact, Alex's only crime is owning and operating a farm up on Weed Patch Hill, a farm that the state envisions as part of its new wildlife preserve, a piece of land owned and operated by Alex's family for generations, a piece of land Alex Mullis has raised hounds on and hunted on for his entire life. Good Lord, Alex has already sold the state one parcel of land, and now they want to push him off what's left of his family's heritage. What is the state after in all this? An official representative of the state's Eagles Lodge headquartered in Indianapolis has put forth the following campaign slogan, and I quote, As the eagle soars to the highest point to build its nest, why not the Eagles Lodge make its home in the loftiest point in Indiana? Richard Lieber, who has already claimed the state's land for seven other state parks throughout Indiana, similarly has said, the state should buy this entire county and set it aside for an oasis for future generations to visit and refresh themselves in the beauty of nature. It's clear what the state wants. 
It's clear what the Eagles Lodge wants. It's clear what Richard Lieber and the state parks want. Question is, what do you, the people of Brown County, want? Has anyone asked? Has anyone asked Jesse Mathis, Selmer Oliver, William Taylor, Jim Straw, Joe Roberts, old Mr. Harrison? The list goes on. Ames, Gendelin, Hobbs, all old Brown County names, all sold their land. Anybody ask what they want? Has anybody asked Alex Mullis what he wants? Alex Mullis tends a farm. He cuts shingles. And more than that, he raises the finest hounds to be found in Brown County. Hell, they're probably the best damn hunting dogs in the whole damn state. But I ain't telling you boys and the jury anything. Many of you fellows been up there yourselves. Now, are you going to be the ones to tell Alex Mullis he can't go up there anymore? Maybe that's all Alex Morris needs in this life to make him happy. To run hounds in the fox chase like he's always done. To nose down a scent way up high on Weed Patch Hill. To hear those hounds baying through the fog. To sip a drink of spring water when the chase runs ragged. To smooth the cockleburrs out of that red fur when the race is done. Maybe that's all Alice wants to make him happy. You think about that. I know you'll do the right thing. It's time for the bonus segment of our Best Of Show. These are the pieces that wouldn't fit into our on-air broadcast, but were just too good not to share. We start with Carrie Ray's For a Song About Crows from Episode 60. I'm Carrie Ray with another installment of For a Song. I found myself thinking and talking about crows a lot lately. Recently, at a fundraiser for the local Raptor Center, a crow named Alistair was one of the ambassadors in the room. We, of course, were amazed by the intelligence, even humor and attitude displayed by the bird, learning that crows are considered to rival primates in intelligence. We also learned how family-oriented they are, how they connect, help one another, and play together. All interesting information for certain, but there are other behaviors exhibited by crows that I'm even more enamored with. Firstly, crows are collectors. In the wild, they most often collect food. In urban areas and in captivity, they collect all sorts of things, often shiny things, and will even gift them to humans they like. They also store them in caches for a later date, perhaps when there's a shortage of food or, well, shiny things. I think the best of songwriters, writers in general really, are collectors, collecting experiences, ideas, and observations. Some apply directly to a particular or general narrative, and some, maybe the most important ones, simply broaden perspective and relative existence in a way that informs their process and deepens the well from which they draw. Now, our little dog is a collector of sorts as well. She's a schnauzer with shaggy little legs and a beard that are magnets for leaves, sticks, ticks, and burrs. None of which we really care for her to drag into the house. The lesson here? Be careful what you collect. Judgments, opinions, prejudices, limiting conversations and the like can be easy to attract and sometimes hard to let go of. Observations about these sorts of ideas are one thing, but allowing them to take root and become part of the filter with which you see the world is quite another. Part of a writer's charge 
is to get out of their own way as much as is possible. Crows are also storytellers. Studies have shown that they not only remember and discern, but also have the ability to relay that in real time to each other. Furthermore, they teach future generations to make it clear that certain things need to be taught. So they not only teach, but teach others to teach. Likewise, I think that the songs that come to a songwriter are meant to be shared and shared again. And at best, may just model and encourage the idea of sharing between us in general. Now, wouldn't that be something? Finally, they understand the need for each other. They stick together in couples, families, and murders. Yes, that's right. A group of crows is called a murder. Cool, huh? They look out for each other, help each other, share stories, feed, and teach each other. Sounds like a pretty good model for songwriters. <laughs> Hell, sounds to me like a pretty good model for humans. So next time you have a minute, or even if you don't, look up. Around here, you're likely to see some crows. Then, take a deep breath, watch, learn, and for crying out loud, share. I'm Carrie Ray, calling to you from the hills of Brown County, wishing you Godspeed and hoping you'll join me next time on For a Song. Now a song from Lucky and the Kid, Brown County Vacation, from episode 40. Go to Brown County on vacation, you're gonna leave here on probation. Over cops and courts, the only game in town. You can't live here like Tom Sawyer, bring your checkbook and your lawyer. When you come to visit, here in the hills of Brown. It all started last November, can't forget I remember. I got caught trespassing while standing in my yard. Well, they pulled her pistol and sat me in a chair and hollered at me. While my girlfriend stood there looking at me hard. Go to Brown County on vacation, don't leave here on probation. Those cops and courts are the only game in town. You can't live here like Tom Sawyer, bring your checkbook and your lawyer. When you come to visit here in the hills of Brown. Well, off to jail they took me, where they commenced to book me. I'm a hardened criminal, you can see it in my eyes. Now I remember well. When they took me to my cell, all my friends were there. Imagine my surprise. Go to Brown County on vacation. You leave here on probation. Oh, the cops, of course, it's the only game in town. You can't live here like Tom Sawyer. Bring your checkbook and your lawyer. When you come to visit, here in the hills around. Becky and Dave share a mouse story from episode 64. So we have something a little bit different. My wife, Becky Staff, is in, and she's going to relate a story that just happened to her a couple of days ago. One of the issues with living in the country is sometimes mice will find a great place to live that you don't want them, like your barbecue grill, or in our case, 
they occupied uh, one of our cars. And Becky decided without consulting me that the best thing to do would be to get the decon out and poison the mice, which actually did kill the mice. But unfortunately, they all died inside the uh, heating and cooling system of the car. <laughs> they were supposed to go to water, but they <laughs> went to our well, cooling system. And then the smell of death was so overwhelming that we couldn't even drive the car, and we paid a fortune to have a mechanic take the dash apart, remove all of the dead mice, and then three different times, as I recall, they did some kind of ozone thing that left the car smelling somewhere between weird perfume and... Well, the stink of a dead mouse. So with that on her mind, Becky was driving the new car the other day. And, well, Becky, why don't you pick up the story from there? Well, I just got back from lunch, and I grabbed my purse to go back into work. And lo and behold, this little mouse is sitting right under my purse. Scared the living daylights out of me. And I immediately called you. I remember. Freaking out. Because, what are we going to do? Because there's a mouse in the car. And you said... Hi, hon. <laughs> right. You having I, a problem today? <laughs> and, I, and I mentioned that we should trap the mice instead of right. trying to poison right. them. Because we've already learned that lesson. And... Right. But I had to take care of matters in my hands again. So I was searching on the internet that there's this little gizmo you could buy and attach to the battery and it'll make a noise, right? But it won't come in. Anti-mouse noise. Yeah. Right. It'll make a mouse uh, buzz that, won't, that mice don't like. But I won't get it for about two or three days. So... I went to another website that said that essential oil of peppermint works because mice don't like the smell of mint, right? Well, I'm, that's right up my alley, except all my essential oils are at home. So I have to go back into town when I get off work and buy some peppermint oil, which I did. So I'm doused in the car, every carpet, piece of carpet with the peppermint oil. I'm doused in the engine, um, any, anything you could think of that might burn a, a peppermint smell. I'm doing this in the parking lot. And then I had another errand to run downtown. So on my way to downtown, I would rev the engine because that said the mice don't like vibration. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, going down the road, vroom, vroom, you know, and I'm thinking any time now that this mouse should be gone, right? And I hang a left, and my God, that little mouse runs out of the steering wheel, across my legs, back onto the passenger side seat. And I see my opportunity. There's a parking space right up ahead. So I'm in the middle lane. I got to get ahead of this lady on the right. We were at the stop sign, and she's on her cell phone, not paying any attention to the light. So I roll the window down. And I said, Miss, as soon as the light turns green, I got to run out in front of you because I need that parking space because I got a mouse in my car, okay? And she says, okay. And so the I, light I turns green. I think almost green. anyone would agree with that. Yeah. Right? The light turns green. I'm just, you know, and I leap out of the car. Now, mind you, I'm in my uniform. And I leap Postal out of the car. uniform. Right. Yeah, yeah. The mouse is still sitting on the dash. And I fling open the passenger side door. And I was like, he's just like hanging out, right? So I'm like, I'll scoop this thing right out and throw him onto the sidewalk. And I did. I took my left hand and flung him out on the sidewalk. Great success. Lo and behold, there was two women walking down the sidewalk at the moment I tossed the mouse in front of them. And they went, oh, a mouse! And, um... We're all three watching the mouse run to this glass door. At the same second, 
it opens and a guy walks out on his cell phone, clueless to what's now, going on. This is on. a restaurant. Right this there is on a the restaurant. <laughs> and the door is starting to close and it's almost closing. Oh, the mouse is in. Now, why I didn't leave, I don't know, because, you know, it would be my problem, but it is kind of my fault that the well, mouse Well, it was got. your mouse, yeah. after all. Well, it was a wild mouse. So I run into the restaurant, and I'm running behind the mouse, and the mouse goes in the corner, and he sees a straight shot down this nice, clean, new restaurant. He starts running straight for the kitchen. Of course. The second there's a waitress right there at the door, and she immediately goes, A mouse! And then all the patrons sitting down turn and look, and I only had a few seconds to think. I grabbed a sugar bowl off the sideboard. I dumped their sugar packets out on their table, and I throw myself down on the ground right before the mouse has a chance to run into the kitchen. And I cup the bowl. I missed. And he runs down the sideboard down the other direction back towards the door. And I run over to the other side with the cup, and I miss. And finally, the waitress says, why do you have a mouse? And I said, it's a wild mouse, and it was in my car. And um, she's like, but why do you have a wild mouse in your car? And I'm like, it's a long story. I live way out in the woods. Here, help me. You get on the other end of the sideboard, and I'll get on this side, and we'll catch this mouse. Well, he found a little crust of a baguette underneath the sideboard, and he wouldn't get out. I had to get the waitress on the other side of the sideboard and I said scare him and he'll come running this way so she did and he started running towards the door and I missed him the first time I chase him all the way out and he's back into the breezeway I have a chance I can cup the mouse again with my hand and th fling him outside the door and I did then the uh, manager's right behind me both of us turn and look and it's like Oh, no, he's headed for my car. Now, now you, you left the car door open, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> no, I was And he's heading for my car. But I run to the car, and I jump in, and I, you know, gun the gas. I, I did see the manager in my back rearview mirror tiptoe out into the parking space and look down but i'm not sure if we succeeded or not and that was my mouse story well the the upshot of that was that the car ended up in the shop and the mouse yes. had in fact got into the uh, air cleaner and made which, a nest which had to be vacuumed out but they did have to do the ozone thing again well, to get the dead smell out it there. doesn't it doesn't have a dead smell it's got a little perfumey what? kind of mouse urine smell not anymore. It smells like peppermint. Pep with a little peppermint sprinkled over the top. This is Dave Seastrom. And Becky Staff. See you next time. This is Hank Swain's tale of The Day Salt Creek Flowed Backwards from Episode 11. The Day Salt Creek Flowed Backward. The years 1811 to 13 saw violent earthquakes along the Mississippi River centered near New Madrid, now known as the New Madrid Fault. The territory at that time was sparsely populated, so the damage then was minor when compared to what it would have been today. There were accounts for a short time that the quake caused the Mississippi to flow backwards. A 1972 article in the Brown County Democrat newspapers refers to a similar reverse stream flow on Salt Creek here in Brown County. 
The new highway to Columbus was under construction, and the farms supporting the two new arched bridges were in place two miles east of Nashville. The earthquake that day was only a point four on the Richter, but it was enough to collapse the scaffolding on the bridge construction. Now, this created a temporary dam, causing the water to back up Salt Creek for a short time before the stream pressure broke through the clogs, restoring the flow. But the damage from this temporary backflow of the stream was minimal, but the psychological effect upon the Brown County residents proved to be far more extensive than might have been anticipated. As the stream began to reverse its flow, it loosened all the junk thrown into it and pushed it up over the riverbank, depositing it there. And the farmers who had been using the creek as a self-flushing dump site began to see all of their former deposits return to them. Farmer Tyson Milo, who had been one of the worst offenders, because of his extensive acreage along the stream above the bridges, anything of heavy weight that he had discarded into the stream began to surface back on his fields along the riverbank. It began to look like a salvage yard. There was his 1960 Chevy pickup truck, two old water heaters, a big tractor tire, old corn planter, even the 1934 and tractor and the old kitchen wood stove range, metal hog feeders, an old cultipacker, smooth field, no longer used by any farmer, horse-drawn field mower, threshing machine that was used to harvest the oats and wheat, and almost any horse-drawn machinery that was made extinct by tractor-driven tools. Well, the Brown County Democrat newspaper took pictures of the sorry mess, and the whole county began to reassess its relationship with its streams. A community conscience seemed to surface, and with it a belief that the county was experiencing a kind of a retribution for having used Salt Creek in such an abusive manner. Community leaders felt pressure to take action and to make amends. The recycling center was built, and schools promoted the long-term savings from recycling, and the children in turn persuaded some doubtful parents to join the cleanup of our county. The Chamber of Commerce created a project to voluntarily clean up a long stretch of Salt Creek so that canoes and kayaks had a debris-free eight-mile float. The Visitors Bureau promoted the annual kayak race, which brought new influx of tourists interested in the outdoor sports activities. The popular mountain bike trail in the Brown County State Park already had a reputation as one of the best in the nation, and some of the riders of the trail were also river sports enthusiasts and helped promote the kayak race. Little did residents know how great an economic benefit would come from the earthquake that caused Salt Creek to flow backwards. One of the local residents, upon reflecting on the incident, suggested we should memorialize it annually as the day Brown County turned green. Our friend Frank Jones introduces Steve Miller's Firewood story from Episode 3. Steve Miller has a story about Christmas in the past. 
Back in the 70s, I was full of Christmas spirit and young, and I got a phone call from a friend of mine that said that they'd gotten a phone call from uh, some people down near Mount Nebo at a church, and um, Wessie and Bessie Carmichael, uh, they were approaching 90 years old, but lived down there by themselves without electricity and with their animals and just people that the church kind of had taken care of a little bit. And the story was, which really intrigued me, that a neighbor had seen the bluish kind of smoky color of their chimney smoke as it came out of their chimney and knew that Wes and Bess were down to their, what he called the wet pile, you know, the bottom of their pile of wood where it was getting damp and it gave off a blue smoke. And I thought, wow, that these people take care of each other and keep an eye on each other, even from a distance watching the color of their smoke. Got my little red pickup truck and I got a friend and we got our home light chainsaws and headed down Mount Nebo Road. It was a Sunday afternoon, and I think there was 12 or 15 inches of new snow, and it was still coming down, and I kept thinking, well, I wonder if we're going to get out of there. But as we came down Mount Nebo Road and found their lane, and as it kind of sloping downhill, and I kept looking at how we were going to get out of there, and it was going to be tricky, but we had to move pretty quick. So as I approached their house, it was just like going back in time. It was just this amazing people living in nature that just intrigued me and there was Wes standing there he had his axe and he he had this look about him his beard and his hat and his eyes and just one of those characters that I was very intrigued by and as I came up I rolled down the window and he just looked there and I introduced myself kind of I said Wes we're here to help you cut some wood and he knew we were coming I guess somebody told him and he had his axe and he looked at and he said I said I'm from Nashville he said well I guess that'd be all right and I he looked at me and I thought oh my gosh what eyes what face and I knew he was looking right into me and I thought well let's cut some wood you know it's getting dark and he kind of motioned his axe kind of down the ridge and I was we headed down and I said well you want to ride and don't like trucks don't like machinery and I thought, oh, boy. So as we headed down there, first thing I saw was a big red oak tree right near the house, maybe 100 feet away, and an easy cut. And I said, hey, Wes, there's a big red oak right there. It'd be a great one. And he looked at me, and he just shook his head, didn't say anything, just shook his head, no, and motioned on down. I thought, we're getting further downhill. And then I saw a big white oak. And I said, hey, Wes, there's a, there's a great white oak right there by the road. And he just stopped, and, and I stopped the truck, and he just walked right up to my window, my open window, and he just stuck his face probably two feet away and just looked at me right in the eyes with those eyes and that face that were just speaking timelessness, really. And he said, you know, I'm a man of my word, and when I say something, that's what I really mean, and shook his axe. And I thought, whoa, okay, lead the way. So he headed on down, and we went way down over the ridge, and I thought, oh, my gosh. And so we turned the truck around, backed up to this tree he wanted to cut, and he had told me that he and Bessie had cut all their wood, probably 50 years, with a two-person cross-cut saw that he kept razor sharp with his file. And she would get her little handmade basket and put their lunch in it, and the two of them would head out for a whole day and cut wood by hand for all these years and put it on a little sled that they had and pull it back up to their house by hand. You know, this is just amazing. And we fired up the saws and he just sat there just beaming. I mean, he was just smiling so big, watching, is so happy. And his eyes were just so bright. He was just like in wonder that we were cutting these trees with these power saws. 
And I thought, oh, this is so great. And so we cut a big load and put it on the back of the truck and headed back up. And he walked right in front of the truck, wanted to lead the way. So we went back up and stacked it all right by the front door and saw that he was really down to his last wood. So I felt really good about it. And I said, okay, Wes, we got to get home. It's getting dark and I got to get back. And he just shook his head and looked at me again with that same look and said, no, Bessie's made you guys supper, so you got to come in. I knew, okay. So he opened the door and he motioned us in. We went in and there was a table right in the middle of the room with candle because they'd never had electricity, you could tell. They'd never lived with electricity. And I thought, wow, we're going to have dinner with these people and it's getting dark. And I guess I don't really care. You know, I mean, these are just such great characters. And so we sat there and the two of them sat in the chairs, watched us sitting there at the table. And then Bessie went to the stove and got a pot of Kraft macaroni and cheese dinner. The church had given him boxes and he said, well, I don't know what to do with this, but I made you guys some supper and it was four boxes of Kraft macaroni and cheese dinner. It was a big kettle full and she piled it on her plates and the two of them sat there and watched us start to eat this. So I ate and ate and my friend ate and ate and just about the time I get about half of my plate down, she'd go back to the kettle and bring it back over and heat more on I thought I was going to bust. But And then I finally started to relax and thinking, well, this is an evening I'm never going to forget. I started looking around and I saw their life. I saw the sack of hickory nuts and the bittersweet and the herbs hanging up in the window sash. And I saw that she had made handmade rugs, just animals, the dogs and the cats and the eggs. And they didn't have refrigerators. I just saw how these people lived by the simple truths of nature and the seasons and without money, without electricity. And and that was just an amazing evening when it was snowing. And I kind of relaxed and heard their whole story about their lives. And I was just blessed hearing the story of Wesley and Bessie Carmichael and we finally headed out said goodbye and shook their hands really hard and smiled and just I could tell that this was one of those Christmassy feelings that just was the best so we had got barely got out of there I mean it was just one of those evenings where we just barely got home and I was just so thankful but that we'd ever gone down enjoy the Whipstitch Sallies from episode 23 with their song got me a letter Got me a letter from a girl I know I'm sleeping with a man and she can't let go My name is Jolene and I've got a story to tell I tell you right now that it don't end well I got me a letter
Rachel Perry has the story of Grandma Barnes' turkey from episode 35. A lot of artists discovered Brown County's paint ability and flocked to the area in 1906. Around that time, an artist couple from Wisconsin showed up at the Pittman Inn in Nashville to spend the summer painting. Most days, the husband, Adolf Schultz, tramped along cow paths and set up his easel to capture picturesque scenes. But his wife, Ada, had other ideas. Noticing apple-cheeked children wading in creeks and sitting on fence rails, she befriended them, filling blank canvases with their sunlit world. Grandma Mary Barnes tended dazzling flower gardens that surrounded her cabin on the east branch of Owl Creek and raised chickens, turkeys, and geese. She hit it off with Ada Schultz, who started bringing selected children to pose with Mary's friendliest fowl. In preparation, Mary hand-fed her feathered charges and fixed jelly sandwiches for the young models. Mary's passion for chickens and turkeys inhibited her taste for cooked fowl, and one turkey in particular had become a special pet. He was king of the roost at the barn's place, strutting among the hollyhocks. Mary fed her pet turkey salty meat grease to add luster to his feathers and often coaxed him into the house, a habit loudly protested by her husband, Washington. Despite his aversion to the bird, the turkey sought out Wash's company like a cat who senses allergic visitors and jumps into their laps. Well, Mary wasn't immune to a feeling of envy for the immortality conferred upon her subjects of Ada's paintings and one day suggested that her artist friend might paint a portrait of herself along with her favorite turkey. Despite their close friendship, Ada resisted, preferring to depict the innocence of youth. But she finally gave in and agreed to begin a large canvas in late August, a week before the Schultzes returned to Wisconsin. While Mary scurried around hoeing, weeding, and carrying water, selling eggs and baby chicks, and scrubbing other people's clothes, her husband, Wash, moseyed about the place. Often sleeping till almost noon, he would then split a few chunks of wood and occasionally make brooms to sell in Nashville. He was known as a slacker among Mary's friends, but his buddies at the liar's bench in town knew his true reason for sleeping late. In a hollow two ridges north of Owl Creek, Wash spent long nights tending his fermenting corn mash. One sticky evening in late August, when the insect symphony was loud enough to override porch banjo picking, Wash started out toward his special project, and Mary's pet turkey began to follow. Thinking that the turkey would make an ideal guinea pig for his latest batch of moonshine, Wash didn't discourage the bird. They arrived at a small clearing where a few logs served as benches, and the fire pit, coil, and moonshine still were carefully concealed under shrubbery. Wash put the turkey down and scooped a little gunpowder from his pouch into a metal cup, pouring his latest hooch into the mix. He grinned with satisfaction as the potion flamed when he held a match to it. He allowed the cup to cool and set it on the ground. The turkey curiously approached the cup and began to drink. 
At first, he shook his head in bewilderment, but then he drank a little more and soon pecked and tipped with merry abandon. When the bird showed no ill effects, Wash settled down to taste his own wares, and the two genially drank as the whippoorwills repeated their insistent whistle. After a while, Wash became aware of distant thunder and rustling in the treetops. Then the black night stuttered with freeze-framed lightning, and he heard the wall of rushing rain before heavy drops thumped his brimmed felt hat. He looked through bleary eyes for the turkey, finally spying him at the clearing edge, wobbling in and out of the bushes, murmuring to himself. The torrential rain fell in sheets, instantly drenching Wash's overalls and filling his boots. Barely able to make out the turkey's shape, he watched in wonder as the turkey gazed up into the sky, beak open. Unable to swallow fast enough to drink the downpour, in a few moments the bird fell over, drowned in the surge. As quickly as the storm had approached, it rumbled away toward Salt Creek Valley, leaving only occasional drips from newly rinsed foliage. Wash nudged the dead turkey with his foot, then picked it up to stagger home through muddy rivulets. The tempest in the forest was nothing compared to the storm Wash Barnes endured when Mary spied him stomping onto the cabin porch, dangling the lifeless bird. She cursed her husband and all of his relatives never to speak to him again. And that's when she drew a line to establish her half of the cabin where he could never again set foot. When Washington Barnes died in his sleep in 1929, the sheriff and coroner had to hoist his body through the bedroom window to comply with Mary's territorial restriction. Grandma Barnes eventually trained another turkey to pose with her for Ada Schultz, but the painting took many years to complete. Titled Companions, the canvas enhanced exhibitions at the Chicago Galleries Association as well as the Milwaukee Journal Gallery of Wisconsin Art in 1928. And we close this best of show with Vera's interview with John Piney, local totem pole carver from episode eight. This is Vera Grubbs with the Brown County Hour and WFHB. I'm talking today to John Penny, a very special artist. Hello, John, how are you today? I'm just fine, Vera, how are you? You are a totem pole carver, do I have that correct? That's correct. I've carved totem poles for, believe it or not, over 50 years. I started, uh, I carved my first totem when I was 11 years old in the sixth grade. I needed an art project and I had a special grandfather that started me painting and carving when I was eight or nine years old. And he gave me a National Geographic with Northwest Coast art and totem poles. And I carved what I called a totem pole for art class, which looked as much Southwest Kachinas that did Northwest Totem, but that was the start of it. So I've been carving since 1948. But you didn't actually take it seriously until what time? I carved off and on until I moved to Brown County from Fort Wayne in 1979. I started carving full time. So I've carved full time over 30 years. And I have totems from Kitchikan, Alaska to Shanghai, China, believe it or not. What kind of role did Brown County play in your art? Well, I was introduced with my first wife to Brown County, and uh, we'd come over here to Nashville, and uh, 
I first fell in love with Nashville when I was a kid in the Navy. I was hitchhiking from Florida in uh, 1956 and and I just kept coming back and coming back. I always liked southern Indiana better than I grew up up in northern Indiana around Huntington and Fort Wayne and I never liked the winters. I came to Brown County in 79 I owned this property down here and started building a log cabin from the ground up and still have it and that's when I started carving full-time. What is it about a person that helps you to choose what sort of totem you might carve? Well I've never carved two alike I never draw anything ahead or I don't uh, mold in uh, clay or anything like a lot of artists. I do all my drawing on the log with chalk and pencil and start chiseling. And I've never, I've carved a lot of eagles and a lot of bears and a lot of orcas, but they never look the same. And uh, I get to know everybody I've ever carved a totem for, I know them. I've never sold one commercially in a shop. I, fortunately, I just, it's people I meet or somebody that sees one of my totems in the family wants to know how to get a hold of me. I've never advertised. Uh, people just come and find me ever since the first one. I've lived an artist's dream. I've got a list of four, five, six people all the time that I've promised a totem to, and I've probably carved 45 or 50. I'm not sure how many, but uh, all over the country. But I get to know you, and I get to know your favorite colors, your favorite animals, your favorite birds. We figure out who are your spirit helpers and your spirit allies, which uh, that's part of what Northwest Coast Art and the Totems are all about. They, those uh, tribes of people up there didn't have a written language, so they carved everything. So a totem tells history about the family and the tribe and rights and privileges and there's a number of different kind of totems uh, carved for different reasons. How long might it take you to complete one? A big 20-footer that's out in front of an estate on Lake Washington and I spent over 1,200 hours I kept track of. I do it all with hand tools. I don't use power tools. I learned with hand tools way back when to carve and I put 33 coats of polychrome finish on all of them with clear lacquer between coats so that takes quite a bit of time and uh, each one of them is different. So you credit your grandfather for your gift? He started me. He got me started. He uh, he carved and made little animals of all kinds and painted them and when I was a kid in the 40s during World War II I spent a lot of time with him on the farm close to Huntington and he always called me outlaw never called me John and I called him D.A. His name was Dallas Anthony and he, he's the one that he was Shawnee. And nothing outside of wood? No, I've never carved stone. Mm -hmm. I have a set of stone carving tools I bought one time and I but I never got into it. Uh, I used to paint a lot with the oils, old people and Indians, you know, portraits and character studies and things like that. I'm strictly self-taught other than after high school, I've never had a formal education, but I've got a big library I'm proud of and uh, read and study a lot and pester a lot of other artists over the years. And it, uh, I'm a totem carver in Indiana, which is a little bit strange and rare. <laughs> out there, they know me. I've got a lot of good friends, some of the old families out in British Columbia and around Seattle and Vancouver Island. And, and to know that we have you here in Brown County, 
It's a wonderful thing. Well, it's the, absolutely the ideal artist community in this area. You can't beat Nashville and Brown County and Bloomington and that area. This whole area down here is uh, people are educated in art with the university and all and people appreciate it and you can't beat the, the living in these hills back in the woods. And I thank you. This has been Vera Grubbs for the Brown County Hour talking to John Penny and we've been courtesy of WFHB. Sound effects courtesy of Butterbean the Cat. Thanks for tuning in to episode 75 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville, and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe now more than ever the world is for everyone. This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Carrie Ray, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour, coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County home.